this podcast from Jubilee Church Derby, a church family looking to make a difference across the city of Derby and beyond. This is a message from one of our Sunday celebrations, and you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. So, as Christians, I don't know about you guys, but as Christians, mental health and the issues around mental health can be quite a taboo subject. We don't talk about it very much, do we? We talk about physical illnesses quite a lot. And we talk about how God can heal us and how God can meet with us. But actually, the, truth, the same is true for mental health illness. God can meet with us, God can break in, and God can heal us. We want to be a community, a church community, that loves and accepts each other for who we are. No matter what struggles we're going through, no matter what life throws at us, we want to be people that love each other, because that's what God wants us to be. But at the same time, we need to know that there is hope and that we need to be full of faith that God can break in and God can meet with us where we're at. So, with saying all of that, we have asked a few people to come and share their stories of how mental health has affected them in their life. This is a really hard thing for people to do because it's a really vulnerable thing to talk about. Sharing yourself, giving yourself. And I, I, I would really love it if we could really honour these guys as they come up. So we've given them five minutes each, and we're going to keep to that so that we can get everybody in, because everyone's got a really unique story to share. And we have asked them to talk about four specific things. So first of all, we've asked them to talk about their background how mental health has or is affecting them and their families, how their faith has helped them in their journey and their current situation and how they can see God in it. So it's quite a lot, but I think it would be really good to hear their stories. So can I ask Jonathan and Sandra to come up? And while they're coming up, can we give them a really, really big round of applause? Thank you. Right. Um, so I'm going first. I'm Jonathan. Um, and this is my wife, Sandra. Um, we moved to Jubilee in Derby about a year ago, and previously we were in a, a New Frontiers church in Stockton uh, for 27 years. Yeah. She doesn't look that old, does she, really? <laughs> um, so what we're going to talk about is um, my mental health problems uh, with depression and self-worth. Um, really, my background, um, I'm a scientist, I'm quite pragmatic and think of things very logically, and I think of myself as a logical person. Um, there was, I had some continually stressful issues at work, um, which led up to mental health problems, and really it was something I found, firstly, very difficult to accept that I could have mental health problems and not just buck myself up and get on. 
that there were problems there in the first place. And really, the, the, the fact that I wouldn't face up to having problems compounded them. I always thought, well, I can just work out a plan to get through this, and if I do this, 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 should be okay. But as it progressed, I found it more and more difficult to actually do anything or achieve anything, even very simple tasks. I found that I would be like a rabbit in headlights with. Um, so I admit that I was very scared about what was happening. I was scared because I didn't understand how this could be happening to me. Um, I felt uh, very much a failure that I couldn't just carry on with life and, and be the person that I thought I should be. So. I think it came to a crisis point mainly because I wouldn't face up to the fact I had a problem. I wouldn't face up to the fact that it was an illness and I began to believe it was just a failure in me and a failure in my character. So it came to a crisis point really where I noticed it was affecting the family, it was affecting everything I did. Uh, I got irritable very easily. Uh, I was um, afraid of talking to people uh, about things. Um, so that's that's what led up to, I suppose, um, first really talking to people outside the family that I had a problem. Um, it, the sort of, as a Christian, I felt I ought to know that God loves me. I ought to know that I'm victorious in life, so I shouldn't have a problem. So that again felt like my failure in my faith to God, which again compounded it. Um, Going through it um, and talking to people helped me see, well, it is an illness and I need to go to a doctor and get help. That's a, that's a pretty good one. Um, in, in praying and in my quiet time, it's, uh, God really focused in on very simple things. What I know about God is God is good and God loves me. And really a lot of my quiet times focused around that and knowing that I'm okay that he loves me as I am, that uh, I'm acceptable to him, he cares for me, and just focusing on that. And then sort of all these sort of achieving things in life, knowing that I'm okay with God, helped me understand that whether people outside thought I was failing or not living up to a standard or wasn't good enough for them, that didn't matter. It was focused on God accepts me as I am. And that really helped me um, and sustained me. And also praying for God's really strength in me in situations continually to sustain me and pick me up when, you know, if I was a rabbit in headlights and I didn't do something, then pray. And that's okay. And get God's strength to pick me up and move on. Uh, where I am now, um, I've prayed with people quite a few times to be healed completely from mental illness. And I, I don't think that's happened. But I know that God sustains me through that. And that's, that's actually brilliant in worship often because I just know how much it is God sustaining me in life. You know, I, I, I wouldn't be able to function without his continual help, his continual sustaining love in my life. And the, the other thing, I think, as a, a fa an individual and a family, we've learned what are trigger points. We've learned to see where something's becoming a problem. We've learned to see where what the triggers are and admit that early on and work around that 
and put in place sort of strategies to cope with stress or with things that make me frustrated or, or when I'm not doing something. So it's a combination of accepting who I am in God and also putting in place those things. You so underplayed life. <laughs> um, I had no experience of mental illness at all until Jonathan became ill. And I'm really going to speak from the aspect of supporting someone because that's really passionate to me because that's what I went through. And I said I wasn't going to cry, but I don't think that's going to happen. Jonathan became really bad in the year 2000, and we had three years where he was, he was, it really affected our family life. At the time, the children were eight, six, and four. Um, I was full-time mum and sort of effectively <laughs> carer of Jonathan as well. I found being the supporting partner a really lonely place. Um, Jonathan was a very different person from the person that he'd been before he was ill. So suddenly I was married to this man that wasn't the man I'd, I'd chosen, with not the same personality as the person I'd, I'd thought I'd married. Um, all the focus was on him. All our friends would ask me or ask him, how's Jonathan? How's he doing? Um, there was very, well, there was no focus for a long time on what about me? What about the family? It was just all about him. How's he? How's his health? Um, and I found that really hard. Um, I just needed someone to listen. I didn't need solutions. I didn't need to be told what to do. I just needed someone who would listen. I knew I wasn't perfect. I knew I wasn't always handling him correctly or the best way or the most supportive way because I'm human, but I just needed someone to listen and, and tell me that that was okay. Um, and I found as a partner, it's okay to be frustrated. It's okay to, get, to be sad. It's okay to be angry. I could take it all to God not take, try not to take it to him, but there were times where I was frustrated with him. There were times where I told him just to get out of bed. <laughs> there were times where, you know, I wasn't the best for him, but I had to accept that that's okay. That was okay with God, and that was okay for me, just to be me. Um, and another thing that I found was what people see in public isn't necessarily the whole real situation with mental health. Jonathan became really good at, he would go to church, I don't, think, I don't think he missed any church at all. He would go to church, he would talk for a couple of minutes, he would worship, then he would go and hide, because we knew the building well, so he knew everywhere where to hide. Then he would come out and get a cup of coffee, which he would take and drink in the car. Then he would come and get me and we would go. So as far as everyone in church was concerned, Jonathan had been at church all morning. But I knew he hadn't been at church. He'd, his presence was there, but he'd been in the toilets or he'd been in the car for most of it. He would do the same when we went to a party, if I could get him to go. Then he would go, he would spend five minutes in the party, he would spend two hours in the toilets in the car, and then he would come in at the end and take me home. And then I would see friends who would say, oh, Jonathan's doing really well now, isn't he? And I'm like, no. <laughs> but to them, they... You know, he'd been at church and he'd been at the party or he'd been wherever and they didn't see that actually he hadn't been there at all, really. Um, so we found that, um, yeah, the, uh, yeah, so people's perception often of where Jonathan was at and therefore where the family at was very different from the reality. And they often, I found, people didn't really want to hear 
my side of where reality really was because people wanted him to be to be better they would pray for him to be better they would be trusting god that he gets better so they didn't really want to hear that actually he's not better and we had three years where it was really grim so that's a long time for people to stay on board and stay supportive so it's just you know if you know someone just just listen just hear them out just be prepared to to cry with them hear that life's tough um we ended up telling the children um because they they knew that something was wrong the eldest was eight when it started he was we worked out last night we had three years where it was really tough um so that meant he was 11 he'd walked in and seen jonathan crying he'd walked in and seen um jonathan quite quite aggressive really um when he got really frustrated jonathan had always been a very hands-on dad and around and available at the weekends and suddenly he wasn't taken to the park i was taken to the park on my own we had one meal time where jonathan suddenly flipped so we're in the middle of dinner picture the scene five of us around the table and suddenly mum says right kids leave your dinner we're going to sainsbury's and and we got to the point where we felt we had to explain to to the kids and particularly the older ones what was going on um to matt who was about 10 i think when we told him he just felt relief because he'd thought we were getting divorced because that was the context he could put on mummy and daddy are arguing or daddy's crying daddy's not around so to him we were about to tell him that we were going to get divorced so the idea that we were just saying daddy's ill was just such a relief to him um so it was definitely the right thing for us to do as a family we treated about it and spoke about it really matter of factly we have um quite a lot of black humor in our family and we just used to joke with the kids really about daddy needing his happy pills we would joke to them a lot and they still joke about there being three jonathans in his head a happy one a sad one and a weird one and and often they would say they would come home from school and say which daddy is it today and um, but that became life for us really which i mean well it was just normal for us for a long time um so how has god helped god's helped me in the um just when i just remember thinking you know god when is this going to end and just that sustaining presence of god and that belief that yeah he's got jonathan in his hands i can't do anything for him but god is holding him god is supporting him and god is holding me and the family and those verses about um god not putting anything beyond beyond what you can cope with um and that god is there for you i got a real sense of god just protecting us as a family protecting me protecting him um just as an aside as a small word of encouragement and then i promise i'll stop <laughs> we have one child who's also struggled with mental illness which interestingly is not the child we predicted it would be um and i think we both would say before it started we would never have expected that that child to struggle um and but they have said that they came to terms with their mental struggles much quicker because it didn't have the stigma in our family we talked about it all the time we talked about it openly uh we talked about um you know we joked about things so for them they she, they said that they recognized the symptoms much quicker than a lot of their peers did um and they didn't have the issues of going to the doctor and getting help that we had had over Jonathan because they'd grown up with that so they really see their background and upbringing and Jonathan's illness as a blessing for them 
you know, where we saw it as it was robbing them of childhood, they saw it, and, and all three actually have said that they've seen it as a blessing because they know and understand it much better than a lot of people their age do because they've lived through it, you know, and that's God. That's God that can turn something that's hard and really difficult into a blessing. Thank you, Jonathan and Sandra. That was brilliant. Wow, what a story. Um, <clears throat> Joe, let's welcome Joe. Joe wants a stall. and shake and I don't want to because I want to be able to say what I want to say so I'm taking all precautions all <laughs> yeah perfect this was you Naomi I said that stool that Naomi uses can I have it <laughs> am I all right and I can't hear whether it's in there or not brilliant um most of you know that I've got I'm married to Steve and we've got three boys um with autism high functioning autism um all very clever um, but who need education plans and specialist support within the classroom, within a mainstream school. Um, Matthew, who's nine, has um, dyspraxia as well and auditory processing and lots and lots of obsessions with autism going on at the moment. Um, Luke, who's 11, has dyspraxia, attention deficit and some sensory processing disorders, which mean that he finds it difficult in school just to keep up with the pace of things. Um, both of them have anxiety issues, but really in terms of, I don't know what to do with that, in terms of mental health, Nathaniel, who's 13, is the one with the greatest needs. So as I've only got five minutes, and I know I've probably wasted one of them already, we, um, he's the person I'm going to be um, talking about. So Nathaniel was um, diagnosed with autism and ADHD when he was young, but one of the key features has always been anxiety with him. Um, he's worried about doing the right thing, he wants to please people, and because of that, his behaviour has become worse, and it's a vicious cycle for him because behaviour is affected by anxiety. He wants to do the right thing, therefore he doesn't. That's kind of the cycle that he gets himself into. Um, loads I could say about behaviour, um, but I'll talk to you separately about all that, but mental health as such came to a, a head a couple of years back, when, first of all, he was um, diagnosed with Tourette's, which is a, a kind of tick disorder, um, which is a daily battle for him because he has motor tics where he moves his head and various things. Um, he has noises that he makes. Oh, flip. He has noises that he makes that um, you, he can't control, and that's difficult in class because people criticise him, call him for that. He has voices in his head. So that was all a big cycle for him. And last summer, he came to a bit of a breakdown, is all I can call it really, where this all just became too much. And he was referred to a clinical psychologist, then a psychiatrist, and they diagnosed OCD, which is obsessive compulsive disorder. And really, that had a massive grip on him this time last year, leading into the summer, and was an incredibly, incredibly tough time for us as a, as a family. It's really, really hard to watch him going through that and not know what to do. Yeah, again, like Jonathan was saying, I'm a scientist, I'm logical, I, I've got an answer for most things. There wasn't a process that I could put him through to help. So that was really difficult. So 
when we come to talk about faith, sorry, I'm on to my third question, even though I haven't got much time left. The, um, I think faith, if I'm honest, has probably been a bit complicated. And a bit like Jonathan was saying, it's helpful what you've said, Jonathan, thank you. Because Nathaniel has a very, very, very deep and certain faith. He's so solid. He fully believes God's there for him. He fully trusts God to keep him safe. He knows without a doubt that God can heal him. He puts mine and Steve's faith to shame, really, sometimes in just how solid he is. But, and this is where the big book came for us, when his anxieties and his tics and his OCD take over, sometimes his faith can be the problem. Sometimes the faith then becomes the battle. Um, so he's heard talks about not being afraid. He's heard talks about scrunching up your worries and throwing them away. And he so desperately, desperately wants to do that, but he can't. And therefore his faith adds to the problem, if that makes sense. Um, he desperately wants to live for God. Um, he wants to please him and do the right thing. But we had to come to a really important point, I think. And I think this is probably the bit that's important for the church, is that to acknowledge that his heart and his desire for God is fully there, but when he's having a bad day, he still has OCD, he still has um, Tourette's, he still has anxiety problems, and that these are medical conditions, they're not just a mindset that he can switch off or pull himself out of or you know, decide today I'm gonna feel better. Um, so for a while, I think his faith was the struggle, um, and it probably was mine as well, because I didn't quite know what I was doing with that either. And sometimes, I think the point to make is just the talk within church can sometimes add to anxieties and add to distress um, where you feel like you're failing God, just like Jonathan has said better than me. <laughs> but, so that's where his faith was. It did, it has got better with this good news coming, um, was that he went through the psychiatrist who explained that there was a, um, an imbalance in his brain, that it was a medical condition, that he could no more throw off this than you could throw off an infection or, or whatever. That helped. And I think that then allowed us to talk about faith alongside um, the other things that the medical profession were putting in place. So he now has a combination of ways of tackling um, this, and he is on the up and in a much, much better place than last year. Um, He's been very brave with, within clinical psychology sessions, so he's done what he needs to do. He's gone, he's put some things in place. He's strategy-based, he's a strategy boy. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. He, that's who he is. So that's brilliant, he's, he's done that. He's had some medication, or is on medication, for help with, the, obviously, the imbalance of stuff. But I would now say that underpinning that is his faith. And my faith, and the unwavering belief, really, that God made him and loves him and is there for him. It's no longer a battle. He sees the faith alongside the medical profession, and I think that's been really helpful. Um, when I talk to him about what I was going to say, he knows, I'm pleased he's not here, but he does know what I'm saying. We've, we've looked through this together. Um, and he said, you must tell, he told me to add this bit, you must tell them, Mum. Um, that the most important thing is that um, to believe that whatever God says is true. That's what he said. Cry now. Oh. Oh, so cross. <laughs> and he said, um, and when it's been written, it can't be altered. And so what he does now, oh, what he does now is he 
has his therapy, he's got his steps, he has his medication, but he every day says he asks God what um, God wants him to know for today. He writes that down. He's written down it can't be altered so that when anxieties come, he tackles that with, no, God has said. So I think, whereas I thought faith was a struggle, and I remember six months ago saying to you, can I speak to you about faith? And I couldn't say what it was because in a way I wanted to say, do you know what, son? Forget about God a bit. Let's, if I'm honest, that's where I was. Not forgetting about God, but God was complicating things is how I saw it. Whereas now I can see that God is underpinning things. And whereas God um, has been there all along, obviously I can see that now. It didn't feel like that, but now he's underpinning that. So Nathaniel can tackle this and we can tackle it as a family with the medical profession, but also with God. And I think for the church, I am one second, one minute. The church, I think for me, is this understanding that you were talking about that um, to be able to see all of this and for you to understand, for us to raise awareness, I think we're an amazing church at accepting different things, different diversities. Um, but just to always say that, just to be careful with what we're saying in terms of God and faith and to acknowledge and to, um, you know, identify and encourage somebody's faith even in those bad, those bad times. So thank you. Joe, that was amazing. I don't think we should be scared or worried about sharing emotions. <laughs> and I think, actually, it takes a very brave person to come up here and cry. Um, and now I'm going. <laughs> no, thank you, Joe. That was brilliant. Um, Kevin. Where's Kevin? Let's give Kevin a big round of applause. So March 11th, 2009, um, I woke up with my mental health in complete uh, meltdown, having never had any history of um, mental illness at all. Uh, our children were 10, 11 and 12 at the time, and every morning we used to have breakfast with them, pray with them, set them up for the day. So I got through that, uh, and then I just um, was kind of uncontrollably crying, knew that I was in really serious trouble. Uh, rang my GP, who was absolutely excellent, gave me an emergency appointment, referred me to the community mental health team, um, offered to see me as regularly as I needed, which was great. Um, I spent eight months uh, off work completely, um, and eventually I kind of came to an agreement with my employer about the end of my employment because I couldn't continue to work. Um, and I went to see a friend of mine, who some of you will know, Carl Taylor, uh, and just said to him... I just need to do something. I haven't done anything for for eight months. I just need to do a few hours a week. I'd been kind of pastoring him and his family and some of the people that he was working with. Uh, and he just said, I'll let you do whatever you want to do, as many hours as you can manage. Don't worry if you can't come in. And I spent the next kind of 12 months just gradually building up my hours with him, working for him. <coughs> and... Uh, that was, that was really, really helpful. Some of the symptoms, some of the kind of things that were happening, um, I completely lost my ability to process information. So conversations with me were punctuated by very long periods of total silence while I tried to work out what to say. 
Um, uh, there were times, and still are times, where I'm not safe to drive. I just can't think quickly enough. Uh, so at the time, our daughter Peace um, was trialling up at Liverpool, and I had to drive her up to Liverpool two or three times a week. I ended up with friends um, doing the driving because we all knew I wasn't safe to drive. Um, and my memory started... I mean, I'm just getting old now, so it doesn't feel quite so bad. But at the time, uh, we realised that my memory was just terrible. There were things I just completely forget. Um, can't, can't remember stuff. Uh, and at one point, something happened while I was kind of in my lowest where I just started to stammer. So I'd never had a stammer before, but I, I just could not get any words out. Um, and I could sleep for England. So my body's way of coping with stress was just to shut down. And I would sleep for hours and hours and hours during the day. Uh... And that wouldn't affect my sleep at night at all. So um, my children, uh, as we've kind of heard already, my children massively affected um, by that, by that absence, as was Mel. Um, but I have to say, in terms of faith, uh, what really brought me through those early months was the faith of people around me. Um, so Mel was just astonishing, um, continued to go to church meetings every single week, continue to lead worship, continue to take the children places. Um, I had a friend, I have a friend, a friend of 30 years standing um, down in Colchester and I went to stay with him a few times and he just helped me process stuff and he came up and stayed with us. Uh, he helped me with some of the medical things that I was having to go through and some of the battles I was fighting there and he helped me with some of the legal things around my employment um, and obviously I had Carl as well who um, was just amazing in terms of um, what he what he did for me in providing a way back into the workplace. Um, I had a real struggle with medication, if I'm honest, um, because I think I had the mentality that um, anxiety was uh, a lack of faith. The Bible says, do not be anxious about anything. So I had a real issue with that, feeling like that meant I somehow lacked faith. Uh, so I refused medication for the first little while I had some talking therapy, CBT, which was absolutely fantastic, really helpful. Um, but so after we'd joined Jubilee, I had another setback um, and decided I needed, some, I needed some medication and support. So I started taking medication um, and I see that now as just simply a, a little boost to, my, to the chemicals that my brain was telling my body to produce and that was very helpful. I spent about six and a half years on medication but I came off it in November. Um, and I'm probably in the best place now that I've been in um, for the last 10 years or so. Um, and I began to... So one of the things that I found really helpful, because I, I was a teacher in a church context, um, and obviously when you can't remember stuff and you can't speak, um, that makes teaching quite difficult. So I began to blog quite regularly uh, about my faith and about... Um, living with low mood uh, and processing stuff. Um, and I remember particularly blogging about Joseph. And there's that um, point at the end of Joseph's story where he says to his brothers, what you intended for harm, God has used for good. Uh, and I'm able to look now where I am. Um, as my health improved and Carl's declined, he died three years ago. Uh, I found myself in the place where I could take on the charity that he led. And I see that as a kingdom work and God very much um, blessing the people that we work with. Thanks, Kevin. <clears throat> what amazing stories we're hearing today of how God is <coughs> good to us. Um, our last person to come and share is Natalie. 
Come on, Natalie. Let's give her a big round of applause. A bit nervous, I think. had an unhealthy fear. Um, I was from South Africa, came to this country just before I was 15. And I guess being in a country where it's volatile, um, I just feared everything. I feared that someone would break into our house and kill us and oh, just everything, the worst thing you can think of or always. <coughs> so nervous. Um, yeah, so came to this country, was felt okay because safe. And then in 2011, um, my cousin committed suicide. That's so sad to me. Yeah, and it broke us. As a family, um, and then about two years after that, my dad became poorly, and then my brother became poorly. So it was really hard. Um, you know, I always felt that like I had to be the strong one. I had to keep my family together, even though everything was just so hard um so yeah so just from all that then Paul's grandpa grandparents died and it was just trying to keep strong for just far too long and I became very angry angry with God you know why why didn't God stop my dad's eyesight from going why didn't God break in with my brother you know why didn't God stop Bob from killing himself, you know, all this stuff. And I guess his guilt as well sets in. And, yeah, I, I just became really angry and very distant and really aggressive in the way I spoke to people. But I was very good at concealing it. So I'd wear masks so in church. I'd be lifting my hands up, praising Jesus, but feeling like I was dying. Um, at home would be a different person. I would be really struggling with, you know, even looking after the girls. I, I wanted to lie in bed all day, and I couldn't because I was hiding. No one knew how I was feeling. I didn't even tell Paul nothing. I blamed stuff, so I was really good at going, oh, I'm really stressed because I've got loads of college work to do. Um, oh, the girls are just doing my head in today. And it just became really hard because I had to remember what lie I was telling in order to keep going. <coughs> so I think it just really got bad, sort of January January 2015. It, it just got really bad. Um, I was feeling really alone. I was really angry with God. I didn't want to know. I didn't want to know. I was just like, I don't I, I don't want to know you because I want to feel angry. I want to feel this. I'm quite enjoying feeling this way because it, it, it gives me a let out, you know. So 
yeah, I started wanting, I mean, not many people know this, but I started wanting to drink a lot more. So, for instance, we never drink in the house. You know, or I'd say to Paul, oh, let's go out, you know, let's go around town. And then I'd on purpose get really drunk just to cope with what I was feeling, you know. But obviously at home, I couldn't open up a bottle of wine because it's not something we do. So I think it was really hard to struggle with that thing of I'm really wanting a glass of wine just to help. And then, um, yeah, it got to about when the Horsham team came. So they, no one knew, but they were prophesying, and everything they prophesied was bang on because it's what I was feeling, and I let no one know, and that broke me. It completely broke me, and yeah, that night I got really drunk. <laughs> Paul was at a meeting, and I was just at home. I had two of those little bottles of wine and got really, really drunk, and yeah, I couldn't cope. <laughs> So then that Sunday, I ended up writing, I was upstairs, I was tired, and I was watching a film, and I ended up writing a letter to God. But in my way, I said to Paul, read this. So we read it, and I said, please don't talk to me about it, I can't talk about it. And then I texted my mom that Monday, and then it all cracked off from there. So I ended up going to the doctors. I was petrified. I thought they were going to take my children away from me. Your mind is, is so mucked up that you just think, if I show that I've got depression, what are social services going to do? Oh, so silly, isn't it? But yeah, um, so yeah, I went and had um, tablets. Those tablets worked brilliantly. They helped my mind focus. I was so way behind at college. I could not process any information. I Yeah, and they lifted me. They were just brilliant. But also, I had to get my relationship right with God because I was so angry. So in Life Group, Dave said that, yeah, it's just to get, your, get yourself right with God in your own personal time. So I set aside every Wednesday morning, and that was my time to meet with God. And wow. He completely, my, my unhealthy fear, I can honestly say, has gone. It has been, my, my faith from there on in has been incredible. And what God's done in my personal life and in, in, in my relationship with him is um, it's just unrecognizable. It's just really, but I really am so thankful I went through that because now when I talk to you know, people, I can really relate to that feeling of being lonely and feeling of dying inside when you just wanted to scream, but you can't scream. You just, it's the most loneliest thing ever. But yeah, I just, yeah, it's just amazing how God has just taken me, taken my whole family and, you know, and how that healing's been done. It is just amazing. So yeah, thank you. Wow. Thank you, everybody that shared this morning. We really do appreciate your stories of honesty. Um, and it's been great to, to hear you. So I'm going to welcome Graham up now. <laughs> I don't get a ding.
Yeah, massive thanks to all of you who shared so honestly and, and vulnerably. Thank you for uh, letting us into your world and for, for sharing that with us. That's really been, been so very, very helpful. I, I want to say right up front that this is not a subject I am an expert in. Many of you here this morning, some of you who shared, and many others of you, I know are facing these things in your life right now or have done in the past. And I want to recognise that, I want to be sensitive to that, um, as well as this is not an area of great expertise for me. However, as a pastor, I love and care for people with all sorts of different issues. Some mental health, some others. And Sarah and I have spent many, many hours talking with, praying with, supporting people who face all sorts of issues. And so we felt it would be good to look at this subject this morning. And uh, we wanted to give a good amount of time to hearing some stories from different people uh, and to hear their testimony of what uh, it's been like for them and what God has done uh, in their life in the process, and as, as we said, we're so very grateful for those of you uh, who have shared. That's been, been so very, very helpful. Let me just find my, uh, my right place here. Yeah. Okay, so mental health conditions can be caused by a whole variety of things. It may be a chemical imbalance in the brain. You've heard that referred to already. Uh, it might be abuse. might be some spiritual reasons. Evil spirits affecting somebody. It might be genetic conditions. might be exhaustion or stress or anxiety or other things. The list actually is quite long of things that are the trigger and the cause of mental health conditions. And actually, very often, it's a mix. It isn't just one thing, but sometimes it's, it's a number of things. But actually, that's true for physical things as well, isn't it? There are different reasons, different causes, and often it's, it's a mix. And we don't always fully understand the whole picture. We see a snapshot, don't we? We don't see the whole thing. And so we need to be careful, really careful, not to jump to conclusions and not to too quickly assume that we know what's really going on or what really a root uh, issue might be. So the Bible does talk about spiritual reasons uh, affecting people. But sometimes it is a, a chemical imbalance in the brain that needs to be corrected by somebody called them the happy pills. So Jonathan referred to them as that. They're you know, doing a medical thing in, in, somebody's, in somebody's brain. Sometimes we pray and God breaks in. And we need to still do that and believe for that. But in the same way that we're saying often the causes are a mix, our experience, and I think what we've heard this morning so helpfully, is that the solution is a mix as well. So we've heard people talk about it, and it's a mix of, I went to the GP, I got some counsel, I got some medication, I got some prayer, I got some friends who knew what was going on. The solution to these things is often a mix as much as the cause is often a mix as well. 
In his book, um, Discipleship Counselling, Dr. Neil Anderson asked the question, when is a problem psychological and when is it spiritual? It's a good question to ask, isn't it? And he says this, the commonly, uh, this commonly asked question presupposes a distinction between the psychological and the spiritual natures of humanity. I believe that question is indicative of a false dichotomy. Our present condition always has some psychological basis. There is no time when our minds, emotions, wills, personalities and relationships are not contributing factors. Likewise, our present condition always has some spiritual basis. There is no time when God is not here. And he goes on, we cannot emphasise either the body, the soul or the spirit at the expense of any other part and still have an adequate or balanced answer. We are a whole people who have a whole God who has a whole answer. It's a good line, isn't it? We are a whole people who have a whole God who has a whole answer. So as Christians, we are called to love one another. We often talk about that, don't we? In terms of what our priorities as a church are, loving God, and then secondly, loving one another. That's really important to us. So we're good at accepting people, I think, with physical health conditions, aren't we? You know, somebody comes in with crutches, you know, one leg in plaster, hopping in. We're, we're pretty good at accepting that. And then we'll ask questions and we'll engage and we'll pry and we'll offer to do the shopping or the cleaning and get around and support and help and, you know, be involved there. Often we're not always so good at though, supporting those who are struggling with mental health conditions. Sometimes we're, we're fearful ourselves, thinking, I'm not sure what to say. Or worse, do, do, am I going to say the wrong thing? And because of that fear, we can back off. And it's not intentionally trying to, to back off from somebody. It's just our own questions and our own fear. Our, saying the wrong thing and putting our foot in it, we tend to back off and sometimes not help and engage and love and act in a way that we so easily could if we got over the, uh, the reluctance we perhaps had. We should pray and expect God to break in and God to demonstrate his goodness and his love. But listen, we also need to pray and love and support people on the journey. And what we've heard this morning from all of you who have shared is that it's been a journey. For some of you, it's still a journey. And it isn't an instant resolution, but actually it's a process. And uh, I want to encourage us, dear friends this morning, let's be loving people on the journey. Whether they're having a good day or not, let's be loving people on that journey. And let's be giving ourselves to one another where we genuinely do love and care and know what's going on. So it isn't just that we get the perception, oh, like Jonathan was saying, oh, I mean, he, was, he was at church, wasn't he? Actually slipped in and slipped out again. <laughs> but let's be building those friendships where we are really loving one another. Let's be praying for people, being a really good friend, letting them talk, doing lots of listening, asking questions, and encouraging them to get medical help. Like Kevin was saying, you know, for a while he's like, oh, I'm not sure I can do that as a Christian, but then, you know what, I just need to do that. And that was so helpful for him. Actually, we need to be encouraging and supporting one another 
in getting medical help sometimes. And one example from, from Scripture uh, is, I guess, the story of Elijah. And you don't have to turn to it, we haven't got loads of time, but in 1 Kings 19, you can look at it another occasion perhaps. You've got the uh, account of Elijah here, and things have been going, uh, well, he had a, you know, a massive high, if you like, in his life. When, when on Mount Carmel, he defeated the prophets of Baal, and uh, you know, God had broken in, and it had been really clear that, that God reigned, and, um, and, and all this happens. And then um, just in the next chapter, Ahab, who's the evil king, told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. And how he'd killed all the prophets of Baal with a sword. And Jezebel sends a message to Elijah saying, May the gods deal with me be ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like one of them. And she issues this decree. And the next verse tells us Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Just in a moment, he goes from a great high, if you, I can use that word, of you know, God breaking in and God's power being seen. And then this, and Ahab and Jezebel make it clear they're out to get him. Well, that's always been the case. There's no, no, no new news there. That's always been the case. And Elijah becomes afraid and runs for his life. Then it says, when he came to Bathsheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went on a day's journey into the desert, he came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. Elijah had, had enough. He ran for his life, got exhausted and depressed, and then says he just wants to end it and finish it all. He wants to die. Sound like some people? Certainly sounds like some people I've known over the years. And then he goes on and then he hides in a cave, trying to get away from it all, not really knowing what to do. But as you read through 1 Kings 19, what you find is the word of the Lord comes to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? God doesn't let him go. Even when he's in his cave, at his lowest God hasn't let him go. And this morning, you might be feeling at your lowest. God's word to you is this. He has not let you go. So the Lord came to Elijah. What, what, what's going on, Elijah? What are you doing here? And Elijah tells him uh, what's happening. And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. But God doesn't come to rebuke him. God comes to show him his love and to give him fresh commission, actually, about what he was to do. And so you may know the story, there's a powerful wind and the Lord wasn't in the wind. There was an earthquake, God wasn't in that. And there was a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And God was in the whisper. And God spoke to him. God didn't leave him. Far from it, God took the initiative and came to him. Not to rebuke him, but to demonstrate his love. And to give him fresh commission for what he wanted him to do. 
And maybe for you this morning, if this is an area you're struggling with, maybe you do need to be prayed for. Maybe you do need to meet God afresh. But then maybe you need to do something as well. Prayer and action go together. So maybe your action is to receive prayer and go and see your GP. It's not either or. And I think in the Christian world, so often we can think, oh, it's one or the other. Well, no, it's both and, isn't it? I mean, that's what you do if you broke your leg. You'd probably go and get an x-ray and get a plaster on it and get some crutches, and you get people to pray for you and help you. Well, isn't it? Can it not be the same with a mental health issue? You know, well, yeah, you get prayed for. Get some people around you to love you and help you. And go to your GP and say, you know what, I just need some help here. Can you recommend the course of action? Maybe it's some medication or some, um, some counselling or some other things that are going to help you. Prayer and action go together. Friends, it's okay, you can do both. As a Christian, it's okay, you can do both. You know, actually, who is it ultimately that has given us medical wisdom and expertise? It comes from heaven anyway. And why would we say, no, I don't need that? No, no we, we do need those things. We're so grateful for them. I'm so grateful I live in a country where that's accessible to us. You know, I've had the privilege in recent years of travelling to Cambodia. <laughs> I've, I've seen Cambodian hospitals. They're not places you want to show up. You know, but we live in a nation and in a culture where all this help is available to us. Why would you not act on it? So prayer and action do go together. And to move on from where you are, you might need to take some steps forward. They might be tiny steps, but take some steps. Maybe that one step is being honest with a friend, telling them how it really is. Maybe it's being accountable to somebody. Maybe it's going to see your GP, as well as being prayed for and allowing God in and not shutting him out. Elijah was afraid, we're told, and he ran for his life. I wonder this morning, is there something you're afraid of? Is there something you're fearful of? Is there something perhaps in your past that keeps coming back to bite you? Or maybe something in your future that you're struggling to face? Do you feel like you're hiding in a cave today like Elijah was? Are you believing a lie that the enemy has spoken? You know, Are you carrying a lie that somebody has spoken over you? And actually, it's just lodged in your spirit. And actually, it's doing you some damage. Lies that say you're not worth it. Lies that say you haven't got a hope or a future. Friends, they're lies. They're lies of the enemy. It's not what God has said about you at all. Quite the reverse. Now, what are the lies that you're believing this morning? Now, I've lost count of how many people we have spoken to, counselled, prayed with, who have been listening to lies. And they've got lodged in their minds and then started eating away at their insights. I think this morning as we talk about this whole subject, there are some lies that God wants to deal with. There's some lies that he wants to, to remove. We're going to pray in a moment. Before we pray, let me make some brief comments about emotions. Emotions are a big part of our lives. I bet my wife never expected me to hear me say that. But I'm discovering these things. Emotions are a big part of our lives. There, I've said it now. It's out there. <laughs> and actually, Jesus himself, who was without sin, experienced a whole range of them. 
He shed tears. He was filled with joy. He grieved. He was angry. He showed astonishment and wonder. Anguish and sadness came over him. He felt deep emotional distress. Jesus felt emotion. But our Christian faith can help us greatly in responding to it healthily. In responding to emotions healthily. We have the Holy Spirit to help guide us and the promises of God to guide our decisions. So you may feel worried, but you can choose not to worry. You may feel angry, but you can choose not to hate. You may feel depressed even this morning, but you can choose still to have hope. That video we watched to start with talked about hope. And as the band come back, perhaps if they could, please, as they thank you. We want to encourage you to choose hope, to choose life, to choose to reach out to the gods who understands you more than you understand yourself. And I'm very aware that... We're not at all offering easy solutions this morning. Because it's not like an easy solution, easy fix. What we've heard is, from our our friends who have shared so honestly, is it's a long-term challenge. They've had to make some decisions along the way to keep trusting God and to keep going with it. But also make some decisions to get some medical help, take some medication, get some counsel, have some friends around them. And so I want to encourage us this morning to be on the lookout for those around us and around our church family who face these issues. You could be the one who reaches out and asks, hey, how can we help? And don't assume you know the answer to that question because everybody's different. But don't back off because you don't know what to say. If in doubt, ask. Remember, there is one message from this morning. It's this, there is hope. There really is. It's a hope that comes from God himself. And as a church family, we want to be dispensers of that hope, don't we? Be those who bring hope into situations. Be those who bring God's hope, loving one another, accepting one another as we are, but bringing hope. Because God is good. So yeah, let's pray. Let's encourage. Let's love Let's walk the journey with people. Let's bring hope where, where hope has left others. Maybe it's your hope they're hanging on to. You can still bring that into a situation. And just as one or two people were saying earlier, let's ensure we're committed for the long haul. This isn't normally a quick fix. So let's make sure we're loving people for the long haul. And if this morning, this is something that you struggle with, but you've never spoken to anybody about, we want to encourage you to start that conversation today and let somebody else in. That they may bring God's hope and help you take some steps as you move forward. Let's stand together. We're going to pray in a moment. The moment we're going to pray. And it's uh, 
I guess, quite a vulnerable subject to, to make a response on. But I do want to invite you to be prayed for this morning if you'd like to. We don't want to have a subject like this and then not offer prayer and the chance of encountering God. So if this is a subject that you feel that you're facing now or that you might be vulnerable to or if maybe somebody else close to you either in your family or your friends is facing this and you need to know some wisdom about how to help them or maybe you recognise there's some lies that you're believing this morning there's some lies that the enemy has spoken over you that have got lodged in your heart that actually begin to eat away at you inside. I believe God wants to remove some lies from you this morning. So if it's any one of those things, and this is an area that you know, you're struggling with or you think you might be vulnerable to and you'll have to get some prayer, or it's maybe somebody close to you, or there are lies that you're believing, as we worship, I want to invite you to come to the front and we'll pray with you. We'll stand with you and pray with you. And listen, can I ask those of you who are life group leaders or those of you who have shared this morning or are part of our wider leadership team, if you see somebody coming forward, can you come quickly and stand with them and pray with them? If you're part of that team and you want to come and respond, then that's absolutely fine. That's cool. You, you can do that. But listen, rather than hang around for ages, rather than not just being sure who's praying, listen, let's have our eyes open. If somebody comes, come quickly, come and stand and come and pray. Let's bring hope. Amen? Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves in every circumstance and situation. Thank you that you are a God who loves to break in and bring hope. And this morning we thank you for medical expertise, we thank you for medication, we thank you for the wisdom of, uh, of expertise and counsel that can be so helpful. And we thank you too for your love and your presence and your goodness and your hope. So we pray now, Lord, that you would break in and bring fresh hope to any who need it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Sunday morning.